You're listening to the audio podcast of the weekly message preached during the online worship service of Central United Methodist Church. We are located in Arlington, Virginia. You're invited to join us for our live worship experience through Facebook or Zoom every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. Visit www.cumcballston.org for details. There you can also learn more about our congregation where we worship God, serve others, and embrace all. A reading from Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 43. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Since Ash Wednesday, the very first day of the season of Lent, our faith community has been on a walk to Jerusalem. Of course, this walk is an imaginative one. It's a virtual walk. But thankfully, unlike most virtual things these days, it doesn't require using Zoom or even an electronic device at all. Instead, we are using our imagination to take a journey from where our church building is located in Arlington, starting at 4201 Fairfax Drive, and we are traversing the distance from the church building to National Airport, which is about six miles, And then we're continuing our journey from the International Airport in Jerusalem to the Garden Tomb of Jesus, which is about 34 miles from the airport. So in all, we are walking a 40-mile journey during the season of Lent. This walk to Jerusalem invites us to engage in 20 minutes of any form of physical, spiritual, or service activity. Any of these can help us move a mile closer on our journey. The goal is that we will all find a way to walk to the empty tomb this year. Some of you may choose to walk a literal mile each day, or simply to walk however far you get in 20 minutes. You may choose to read scriptures or pray silently with centering prayer or some other spiritual discipline to move your spirit a mile closer to Jerusalem and resurrection. Or you may choose to serve someone else by making a meal or calling and checking in on someone to find out how they're doing and to pray with them. That could be a way to move your heart that much closer to new life. 
However you choose to do this, with a combination of all of the above, I hope that you will find your way to join us on this walk to Jerusalem. Now, if you're first hearing about the walk right now, I encourage you to sign up for our weekly e-newsletter, or if you prefer to get a printed copy of our monthly newsletter, you can call our church office. To sign up for the email, just go to our church webpage, cumcballston.org, or call our church office at 703-527-8844. We talked about the Walk to Jerusalem in our newsletter, because during the season of Lent, every year we're on a spiritual journey, the journey to move from death to resurrection. This journey can feel especially difficult this year, because over the last 12 months, death has been so prevalent. And in some ways, this last year has felt like Lent because we've given so much up in our lives. We have just marked the one-year anniversary of the official declaration of the global pandemic due to COVID-19. We are also marking the very first anniversary of our virtual worship services. We have given up meeting in person in order to remain safe and to not spread COVID-19. And that has been a hard sacrifice for so many of us. If you would like to join in on a virtual worship service through Zoom later today, there'll be an opportunity at 3 p.m. The Arlington Interfaith Network is having a special service to acknowledge this anniversary. You can find the link to that Zoom in our Friday email that we sent out the other day, or you can visit our Facebook page to find that link to attend. So because this last year has been hard in so many ways, and you may have given up a lot, you may have not chosen to give up something this year for Lent, and that's perfectly okay. We don't engage in spiritual disciplines in order to earn God's love. That's simply not possible. God's love is already abundant and available to each one of us. It is through the practice of spiritual disciplines like prayer or scripture that we're able to cultivate a habit of choosing love on a daily basis. The scripture lesson from the Gospel of Luke that Lane read for us just a moment ago reminds us that Jesus consistently chooses love. When it would have been easier for him to appease the powerful religious leaders of his day and to appease the Roman-backed authorities and to save his own life, he chose love. Even when Jesus' friends disappear and the crowds that once shouted Hosanna turn on him and shout crucify, He chose love. Even after betrayal and humiliation, even when he was dying on the cross, Jesus chooses love. Christians look to Christ on how we should model our lives. And as Christ consistency consistently chooses love, That is how we are to pattern our lives. We see this when Christ uttered the words, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. 
We discover hope that we see in the repentance of the thief on the cross next to Jesus. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is a model of forgiveness that God embodied in Christ, that God offers to us so that we might both receive forgiveness and offer it to others. We are saved by God's forgiveness of our own sins. We are also saved when we forgive those who sin against us. We include that idea in our prayer every time we pray the Lord's Prayer. When we utter the words, Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. We pray that prayer every week in worship as a community of faith. And I hope that you pray that prayer daily as a practice of your own spiritual life. The practice of forgiveness can only come when we receive it from God and when we're able to offer it to others. And forgiveness is essential to who we are as a community of faith. Throughout this worship series, we're remembering the gifts that we have through the sacrament of baptism. Every time someone is baptized in our denomination, the entire church body gathered there also makes a vow. One of the promises we make is to be a community of love and forgiveness. So each day, we must choose between letting the difficult things in life create anger and resentment in us, or allowing the work of forgiveness to make way for love. Our song that Mark Miller sang for us today, just before the scripture reading, was written as a response to a modern-day act of forgiveness by an African-American church in Charleston, South Carolina. Nine members of Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church were murdered by a young white man when he joined them at their weekly Bible study. They welcomed him for fellowship and prayer before he pulled out a gun and opened fire. At one of the shooter's court appearances, multiple family members of the survivors appeared and they offered forgiveness. Anthony Thompson, the husband of 59-year-old Maya Thompson, said, quote, I forgive you and my family forgives you, but we would like you to take this opportunity to repent. Change your ways. End quote. In that moment, Mr. Thompson embodied the powerful example of forgiveness that we see in Christ. Forgiveness is offered and repentance is possible. As Jesus chose love, Mr. Thompson chose love. Choosing love doesn't mean that the pain from our loss and grief goes away. Choosing love doesn't mean we won't carry the scars that come from tragedy. But choosing love is what opens us to the possibility of new life after trauma. It is vitally important that Christians practice choosing love like Jesus did 
and that we forgive those who sin against us, those who betray us, those who persecute us. That does not mean that we allow symptoms, systems of injustice to perpetuate in the name of forgiveness. Extending forgiveness to that shooter doesn't mean that he can continue living life without repentance. But extending forgiveness allowed those families to embrace new life and find healing by choosing love. Too often, churches will proclaim a message of forgiveness, and it gets twisted in a way that encourages people to stay in a domestic violence situation. It is entirely possible to forgive a person, to choose love, and also to create a boundary that stops a cycle of violence. It is never okay to stay in an abusive relationship as a way of following Christ. It's also not uncommon for Christians to apologize and expect that the person they're apologizing to will offer their forgiveness and accept the apology without doing the hard work that can be required of reconciliation. As a church, we want to be a community of love and forgiveness that we extend to other people. And I believe it's important that we be willing to seek forgiveness from others when we need to. Right now, our local congregation here at Central UMC is preparing to transform our church property to include brand new space for worship, preschool, feeding the hungry, and also 144 rental units of affordable housing. This is an exciting transformation of our church property. This property that we hold in trust for the denomination was originally given by members of the Ball family so that a Methodist Episcopal Church South could grow here in Arlington. We're less than a mile away from Mount Olivet, which was founded as a Methodist Protestant church. In the history of our United Methodist denomination, there's been a long series of schisms and mergers. The name, Methodist Episcopal Church South, reflects the division in our denomination, the ones who broke away following a disagreement over a bishop who was a slave owner. When our congregation was founded in 1911, one stipulation in our deed was that we maintain an all-white congregation. That stipulation is no longer in our deed, but it is in our heritage about how we first received our property. And it leads me to wonder what forgiveness and reconciliation looks like for a congregation who will benefit from land originally given with such egregious stipulations. But that's only thinking back just over a hundred years to the early 20th century. What if we think back even further to think about how this land came to fall under the property deed system in the United States? Right now, we are on land that was traditionally part of the Pescataway people and specifically the Anacostan people. And then if we go a little bit further west, where I used to live, that was where the Manahoac people were. The Piscataway people are still around. Their hereditary leader is Billy Redwing Tyak. Last summer, as we traveled virtually through the United States, inspired by our national parks, 
We acknowledged the Native peoples who were stewards of that land for generations. But we didn't continue that practice throughout the year, though it's one that we can, and I believe we should, begin to incorporate. You might wonder why. So to answer that, I'll turn to a statement from the United Church of Canada, where territory acknowledgement is a standard practice in their churches. Quote, Acknowledging the territory where we gather, and the people who have traditionally called it home for thousands of years, is a way to continue to live out the Church's apologies to the First Peoples of North America. The acknowledgement supports our calls to others to pay respect to Indigenous peoples. It's also one way the Church can work toward right relations, by repudiating the doctrine of discovery that assumed the land was empty when European explorers, traders, and settlers first came. In order to promote mutual respect, peace, and friendship, the 40th General Council 2009 encouraged the recognition of traditional territory of First Nations, Metis, and Inuit peoples at the gatherings of the courts and pastoral charges of the United Church of Canada. End quote. They continue and have detailed guidance on ways churches can acknowledge the territory whenever they gather for worship or a meeting. I learned this week that that practice extends to virtual meetings as well. I read a reflection from Reverend Cameron Trimble. Reverend Trimble is in the United States and wrote about a virtual meeting that incorporated a number of Canadian leaders. Quote, At the beginning of the session, the people in the group went around and offered introductions. Like you, I have sat through what seems like hours of introductions in thousands of meetings. While they are usually interesting, they are rarely teachable moments. Not this time. This time, as people were called upon to introduce themselves, they told us their names, where they served, and then what ancestral land they were calling in from. It went something like, I am Jim. I serve as the regional executive, and I am joining this call today from the ancestral and stolen land of the Tlingit people, today known as British Columbia. I listened to their introductions with such gratitude for the naming of these forgotten and dismissed stories until I realized I wasn't certain whose ancestral land I was living upon. No one has ever asked, and it doesn't naturally occur to me to name it. I have lived my entire life not thinking about the history of the land that has sheltered, fed, and shaped me or the tribes and people who had cared for it. I am very rarely in meetings in the United States where people honored this part of our shared history in their introductions. Now I wonder why. Naming our past, what was stolen, what was forgotten, allows us to be honest about the harm we have caused and the stories we have lost and must now regain. I also learned an important lesson. While I work every day to become more anti-racist, I have a long way to go in that journey. The life experiences that have shaped me have created a biased lens filled with many blind spots. I don't mean harm, but my not knowing, my insensitivity, can create pain both by accident and on purpose. I've now learned that when that happens, I offer an apology, learn from the mistake, and try again. I write this wondering if this is true 
for you as well. When we pray a prayer of confession and worship, if we use one of the traditional writings, it includes the phrase that we ask for forgiveness for the things we have done and the things we have left undone. That's what I was hearing Reverend Trimble ask for, forgiveness of what was left undone. And now the camera knows it sounds like there'll be a change in the pastor's behavior. Just as I acknowledged that I will begin to include a territory acknowledgement when I welcome you to worship each week. Over a decade ago, the leadership of our United Methodist denomination knew that we must begin to acknowledge and repent of the history which displaced indigenous peoples from their lands. When planning the 2012 General Conference, that global gathering of Methodist leaders, they incorporated a worship service of repentance. The United Methodist Communications created a short video to tell us more about that experience. For generations, Indigenous peoples all over the world have faced removal from their homelands and a loss of cultural traditions. Participants in the 2012 United Methodist General Conference set out to right injustices through an act of repentance toward healing relationships with Indigenous peoples. There are many people already who have expressed themselves to say, we don't think the United Methodist Church is ready to repent. We don't think the United Methodist Church will ever be sincere in its repentance. I just hope that the church realizes that its credibility is at stake. Linda Smith served on the planning committee. I certainly worry that many white people will say, it's history, why should I be apologizing for anything? I didn't do anything wrong. That's white privilege, of course. I just pray that they'll open their hearts enough to at least hear the stories. Those stories include the 1864 Sand Creek Massacre led by a Methodist minister. Colonel John Shivington was an ordained clergyman turned military man. His troops attacked an encampment of Cheyenne and Arapaho, killing 165 mostly women and children. This incident and others perpetrated by church members have left an open wound. An apology isn't going to cut it. How would that work? You all would come to Indian people and say, hey, we're really sorry our great-grandparents killed your great-grandparents and stole the land. We're really sorry. Now can we keep your land? Well, that doesn't quite cut it either. We've got to find a whole other way of being in the world, and repentance is about that other way of being in the world. We actually did about two dozen listening sessions with different indigenous uh, populations, and they told us what repentance would look like. They said, it won't be this service you do at General Conference. It will be what you do when you get back. Things like develop personal relationships with us, get to know us, get to share meals with us. The Reverend Carol Lakota Easton helped develop resources that churches can use to educate and engage members in this healing process. An apology is present within this, but there's no expectation that people have to respond to us in a certain way. It's okay if other people don't receive what we're saying and doing. We understand their pain. We understand uh, their distrust. 
What's important is that we get ourselves right with God, whether we're majority culture or whether we're indigenous. It's about plowing the ground, removing the rocks, pulling up the thorns together so that we can live in that harmony, live in balance. And so tonight, in a ritual of commitment to continue this journey, we will come to the river, to the river of tears, the river of life, and we will get a stone. Stones that were once hurled in ways that hurt can become listening stones that lead to life. Jesus, I want people to know that indigenous people are not all gone and that wherever you live in the world, you have neighbors who were first peoples. Maybe they live in your neighborhood, maybe they live on a reservation, maybe they've been completely removed geographically, but there are people who call the land on which you live home. In this season of Lent, when we focus on repentance, turning away from sin and choosing love, I invite you to join me in praying and listening to God as we seek to be a community of faith that extends forgiveness to others and seeks forgiveness for what we have done and what we have left undone. Thanks be to God that we know by the actions and words of Christ that forgiveness, reconciliation, and new life is possible when we humbly confess both what we've done and what we've left undone, and we recommit to once again choosing the path of love.